You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. I pray that God uses this message to touch your heart. Well, good morning to all of you. It's good to see you this morning. Why don't we um, open up with a word of prayer? Father, how good and faithful you are through all generations. And what a pleasure it is to study your word and to see your faithfulness um, thousands of years before now. And knowing that you're still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, we look to you to be the, the kingdom builder, the kingdom foundation of which we establish our life, of which we build our homes, and of which we build our careers and our families, and everything. We ask, Lord, that you would be that foundation. We consecrate ourselves, our mind, our hearts, our ears, our voices today to be glorified, to glorify you, and that you might be glorified in everything that we say, think, or do. We ask that you would open our hearts to your word today to see the lessons that you have for us as individuals, as families, as a church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So I thought I would, um, I would share this morning a little bit about some of the things that I've been learning about in the last uh, few years. Um, some things that I've been going through, because it sort of goes along with what we'll be learning today, but also I always find it helpful to hear where people have been so you know kind of where they are and where they're going. So as many of you know, um, I work here part-time, very part-time, and and I have a full-time job outside of here. And um, for the past 10 years, I've been working in schools in education. And five years ago, about five and a half years ago, I switched from teaching into education technology. And I was really excited about this because um, I really enjoy technology and I do enjoy the school environment. And so I thought this was a great fit. And, and it was. It was at first. And I thought... You know, the, the thing about me, my personality, is that I'm always, I'm kind of a creative type. And I, I would always take a task and, and be meticulous and go about it and go the extra mile. So to give you an example, our school said to me, hey, uh, we're, we're going to institute a randomized drug testing on the kids. And I, wa- I want you to research this and figure out the best way to do it. Looking back, I, I see like how easy it would have been to do something very simple, but that wasn't how I operated. So I, I built this program in Excel, and so I'm calling my dad because my dad's a former accountant and Excel guru, and I'm like, Dad, how do I do this, and how do I do this? And when I was done, this, this thing was like six pages or six sheets long in a spreadsheet, and it had all this stuff and even had a button that you clicked, and it pulled up four random names, and it was, it was pretty crazy. Or another time... Another time, my school said, hey, we would really like to have an online store. So I researched some companies, and I just wasn't happy with it. I thought that their product was kind of stinky. It it would cost a lot of money. It was limiting. So I said, I'll build it. And so I went and I built it and saved the school thousands of dollars. and, and, And it had like a secure payment gateway and all of this stuff. And that was really exciting for me. And then I noticed something. I noticed that my creativity sort of stopped. And I noticed that I began to dislike my job more and more. And I began to regret going to work every day. I hated my job. I hated what I did. I hated the place I worked. And I think back to that and I thought, what were the things that made me not like 
what I used to love to do. And I, and I realized it was because I discovered that people were becoming more paranoid. They're becoming more paranoid. They're becoming more micromanagers. And I didn't get to do the things that I love to do and to do it freely. And I began, it stifled my creativity. In fact, I found myself saying things like, uh, that's good enough. I'll stop. Uh, I don't really want to put more effort into it. Because I wasn't sure if those ideas were going to get shot down. People weren't really interested in working with others and being collaborative. And that was really stifling. So I began looking for another job. And I got a job offer last month. Last month I switched jobs, which is why I've been traveling a lot. Um, and while I'll be traveling a lot for the next couple of weeks, I'm, I'm still sort of in the training, uh, the training mode. But um, so I went to the interview and the guy who's going to become my manager, this is an education technology company. So as opposed to being sold to, I will do the selling to schools. And um, so my manager says to me, he says, how do you feel about working for a place where you are totally autonomous, where you, nobody's looking over your shoulder, where you're on your own? I mean, you're going to be remote in Maryland. We're out here in Utah. I mean, how do you feel about that? And I looked at him and said, I can handle it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was so excited. I was like, finally, you know, some autonomy, maybe a little too much autonomy. And, um, and it, was it was an exciting moment. So um, during my orientation there a month ago in Utah, I, um, the CEO came and talked to us, all, all of us new employees. The company is about 500 employees. It's about four years old. It's a pretty new company. And, um, and so this guy, he has, he's an entrepreneur. He's started, this is his third company that he's running. And he says, you know, I learn by failing. I learn by making mistakes. His first company, uh, he, he started off in, in, in uh, California, kind of in that hub of Microsoft and Apple, all of those companies. And it, it just kind of flopped after a few years. And he said it was disappointing laying off all those people that he hired. And, and he said, I just learned by, by making mistakes. So he decided to start a second company. And this, this company, he, he, his sole purpose was just to make money for his family and get out. So an investor came up to him because he's just pretty popular in the tech community. And they said, we would really like to invest in your company. And he says, Okay, but I just want you to know something. The first person that offers me $5 million gets my company. Well, they invested, and it turns out that he sold his company for $75 million. Made a ton of money. He said the thing was, was that the day that they came with the stock certificates that he was going to hand out to the partners in the company, he said it it was funny because he's passing these out, and he goes, here's your mortgage, here's your kid's college education, here's your retirement, and he said it felt good. It felt good to give back to these people who had taken ownership in this uh, adventure. So he said when he came to this, this company, the company that he's at now where I work, he said one of the things that I, you know, we're going public next year, so one of the things that really interests me is that this company will provide for families and for people. He said all of you are owners in this company. And when we go public that day, met a lot of people will make a lot of money, but everyone will make some money. It may not be enough to retire on, but at least it's something. And he said, I hope that you take ownership in what you do. 
He said, nobody is looking over your shoulder as you're doing work. We work very independently here. And I want you to take ownership in this company. I want you to love what you do. I want you to work hard at what you do. I want you to have fun with what you do, but take ownership in it. So that's one of our, pro- our values at the company is ownership. Everyone is an owner. And I thought, wow, this is really such a different workplace than I was at. I mean, talk about night and day. And I think about that because, um, because for me, going through these experiences helps me become a better person, a better leader, a better, un- you know, to understand uh, even my own personality and my dynamics and the things that I like in my life. So it kind of goes along, too, with what we're going to talk about today with building with others in the book of Nehemiah as we look at our Kingdom Builders series. Now let's take kind of a recap. As we know, Nehemiah was in, um, he was a displaced Jew, and he learned that the, the walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed, and his city laid in ruins. And so he had this burden on his heart to do something about it. And so he went through this process, Julie introduced us to the first chapter where we saw that Nehemiah, the first thing that he did was that he prayed. He prayed. The second thing he did, uh, Steve talked about last week, he he planned. And I love what Steve said too about the Holy Spirit at work. That the Holy Spirit doesn't just work in impromptu circumstances. Sometimes he does. But oftentimes he works through the planning and that process. And Nehemiah planned all of the details, but then he waited for an opportunity because he was stuck there. He had no resources, but he had planned them. So he had the right opportunity when he would get to talk to King Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes looked favorable to Nehemiah. So Nehemiah got all of the resources that he needed. And he came to Jerusalem, and then he inspected the problem. He went around and looked at the walls for himself. He had heard about them. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. Because here he is, standing in Jerusalem. He's got the resources he needs. He sees the problem. He understands what needs to be done. But he can't do it alone. So in Nehemiah chapter 2, he says, "Then Then I said to them, and this is verse 17, Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So Nehemiah's process has been to pray, to plan, to wait for an opportunity to inspect the problem. But then he offers a solution. Do you ever find the people that, do you ever find it draining the people that always talk about the problems but never offer the solutions? I, I find that draining on me. Because it's like you're, you're, you're done, you're like, okay, I get it, I get it, we got problems, we got problems, we got problems. All right, what are we going to do about it, you know? And I remember I, I, list, I, was, um, I got to hear a really prominent uh, theologian, a well respected, well known theologian over in Annapolis one, uh, one day. And he's talking in this room, uh, probably full of pastors and um, other church leaders, and I mean, just anyone who wanted to be there. He's written a number of books and, and so forth. But he, he, talks, he was talking about 
relativism and Christianity in the public square. And he, and he goes on and on and on about how you know, Christianity is lots of ground in the public square and how everything's relative. And then he says, so, what, so is there something we can do about it? And I looked around the room and all of the pastors were like, these guys had been totally deflated because he talked all about the problems over and over and over to the point he had beat them down with this sense of hopelessness and never really offered a strong solution. But Nehemiah offers a solution and he invites others to join in rebuilding the walls. If they didn't volunteer, if they didn't say, yes, we will rebuild the walls, Nehemiah would have a problem. This was more than one man could handle. We're going to read uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, which I'm going to warn you is um, a lot of names that I'm probably going to mispronounce and uh, just full of these tough names, which they just come up with like Michael and John and George. <laughs> I, thought about, I thought about like just renaming them, but I thought that, that wouldn't be very good. <laughs> but it's worth reading. It's worth reading one because it's God's word. And um, I, always, I, I always love to read God's word, and I think it's always worth looking at, even the tough passages. But also, these guys did an amazing work, and we can honor them even today by reading what they did. So if you have your Bibles, I'm in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate, and they dedicated it and set its doors in place building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to him. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, Made, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The, the Jashana gate was repaired by Joida, son of Pesea, and Meshulam, son of Besodea. They laid its beams and put its doors and their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon, and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon, and Jadon of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Raphiah, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Haramath, made repairs opposite his house. And Hadish, son of Hashbenai, made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of Harim, and Hashub, son of Pahath-Moab, repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. Shalom, son of Haloesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun, and the residents of Zanoah. They rebuilt it and put its doors and their bolts and bars in place, and they also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the Dungate. The Dungate was repaired by Malkijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth Hakarim. He rebuilt it and put its doors and their bolts and bars in place. The Fountain Gate was repaired by Shalun, son of Kol-Hose, 
ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the Pool of Siloam by the king's garden as far as the steps going down from the city of David. And beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of a half-district of Bethzur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half-district of Kela, carried out repairs for his district. And next to him, the repairs were made by their fellow Levites under Benui, son of Henadad, ruler of the other half-district of Kela. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. And next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Elishib, the high priest. And next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the entrance of Elishab's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. And beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, son of uh, Messiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. And next to him, Benui, son of Hedadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle of the corner. And Palau, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower, projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Pediah, son of Parash, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel, made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate, toward the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower of the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repair repairs, each in front of his ha- house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Emir, made r- repairs opposite his, his house. And next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard of the, at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zaleph, made repairs on another section. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Barakiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. And next to him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. So a lot of people making these repairs to these walls that were tattered from the siege. So there were some characteristics, I don't know if you saw, in, uh, among the workers. How many of them did it say were masons? None of them, right? We don't know that any of them were wall builders or any of them had that type of expertise or occupations. We saw perfume makers. I bet that wall smelled really good. It's like a scratch and sniff wall. (laughs) Goldsmiths, uh, priests, Levites. We saw that they were from various areas, from Jericho, from some of the surrounding hills. Many of them worked on areas right outside their homes. So they said, here's my home, here's the wall, I should make that repair. We saw that some noblemen didn't participate in the work, but many of them did, including priests participated in the work as as well. We even saw that one man repaired uh, some of the wall with his daughters, so women participated in the work. 
it seems like they were all willing to participate. They even said one person zealously repaired the wall. And they were faithful in their work. They did what they said they were going to do. And they completed the work in just 52 days. I mean, that's like, that's a construction record right there. 52 days. I mean, we could learn some lessons from them, I'm sure. So the city of Jerusalem during Nehemiah's time is much smaller than it is today. And the walls that you see in Jerusalem today are not the walls that Nehemiah built. Those were built more in the 1500s. But the, but the wall itself, but still, the city is pretty extensive. And considering that they were, you know, the tools that were, they were using, the unskilled labor that they had, it was a, a pretty significant work. Archaeologists have discovered parts of Nehemiah's wall, and you can see it here, where they've, where they've, um, where they've uncovered it. I don't know, how, it doesn't look very tall, and we'll look at that in a couple of weeks for those of you taunting the kids with the building their Legos. There's a lesson for you in a couple of weeks about building through opposition. So, um, so I'm not sure how, how tall that is, or at least at the time of Nehemiah, but you see how wide it is. Here's another picture that they just recently uncovered. So it's kind of blurry, but you can see it's about 10 feet tall, maybe, 9 feet, 10 feet tall, but it's 15 feet wide. So what they would do is they would take the big stones on the outer edge and then they'd, they'd kind of fill in with the rubble from the center part. And this is the wall that Nehemiah and his workers built, what, 400 B.C. or so, 420 B.C.? So, I mean, that's a long time ago, 2,500 years or so. That's a long time. But there are some stories here because this is not just... This isn't just about a wall. This is about teamwork. This is about building with others. There's, there's lessons to be learned here. And I think particularly what strikes me about this story is the lessons that pertain to us as a church. What can we learn from this story in Nehemiah? The first thing that, I, that really strikes me is that Nehemiah didn't wait for the qualified. He utilized the willing, and the willing learned how to accomplish the work. I think that's an important lesson. Nehemiah didn't wait for the qualified. He utilized the willing, and the willing learned how to accomplish the work. How many of you think that Nehemiah stood out there and was like, okay, all of you who are skilled masons, raise your hand. He probably didn't. He probably said, how many of you want to do this work? And they all raised their hand, and he said, okay, well, let's figure out how to build a wall. And I'm sure there was a, a, maybe a day of training or a couple of hours of training or some looking on uh, with others who, who may have had a little bit more experience, but then they just went to it. And for 52 days, they built this wall. I'm going to get on my soapbox here for just a little bit. So um, indulge me if you would. But, you know, our society is really big on qualifications. They put, you know, you go to school, you get your degree, you go through whatever training you need to go through, and that is what qualifies you to do that work. So when you submit a, a resume for a job, they ask you, you know, what qualifies you for this, right? Well, unfortunately, I think we've done the same thing with God's kingdom. I think we've brought the world system into God's system. I don't think it works quite that way. So I had a conversation. I, I saw something. Um, I read an article about, uh, and this is just an example. I read an article about... Um, uh, alternatives to seminary. 
And someone was suggesting, well, there are some really good education opportunities for pastors and church leaders and so forth, and, and, um, and it's not necessarily a typical seminary degree. So I posted this article, and I thought, you know, the, I really like this article. I really like what it offers. And someone, someone said to me, I think you're undermining seminary, that if a pastor isn't willing go to, to go to seminary, doesn't go to seminary, he's not called to be a pastor. And I said, I said okay, so seminary is a man-made education thing, right, with a particular degree that was founded in 1500. And thank goodness we founded it, because what would have God done without seminary for 1500 years, right? <laughs> Peter and Paul, unqualified, right? And Timothy and all of those guys in 1500 years of church leaders, right? Not, and again, this is, I think, the backwards part, that, that we look at education and these degrees and say, this is what qualifies you, instead of God qualifies you, and this is training that is good and necessary and important, and everyone should have that training. So Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this. He says, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives. Who gives the wisdom and understanding? The textbook? The Spirit gives it. And sometimes he gives it through the textbook, and so many times he gives it through the professor, and sometimes he gives it through experience, and sometimes he just gives it to people. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Who has qualified you? The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people and the kingdom of light. You are qualified by the Holy Spirit. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit. You are qualified by the Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit. There's another thing in this passage that I want to point out to you, that, that, that phrase there, the, to share in the inheritance, the Greek word for that is kleros. Kleros, that's where we get the word clergy. When you think of the word clergy, what do you think of? Pastors, ministers, priests, right? You think of a particular group of people who you might even say are called to God's work. But that's not how Paul uses the word kleros. It is not how he uses the word clergy. We sort of look at it as sort of distinct classes of people. The people who are called to ministry are the clergy, and everyone else is the laity, right? But take a look at this. Who is Paul writing to? Is he writing to a particular person? He is writing to a church, the church at Col- uh, the Colossians church. And he's writing to them to, sell, to say that they're all part of the kleros. They're all to share in the portion of ministry. And then he says, holy people. And where we get the word people or kingdom is the word laos, laity. In other words, what he's saying is there's not two classes of people here. There's not the qualified and then the rest of everyone. There is one group of people, the laos, the people of God, who are called to the kleros to share in the inheritance of God's work. You are qualified by the Father. You are not qualified by anyone else, and you are called to ministry. And Paul says that there are different types of ministry. Ministry looks different, and he gives different groups of people. He talks about evangelists and pastors and teachers and elders, 
and those types of things. But there is no such thing as a class of people that are called to ministry. All of us are qualified. All of us are called to God's work. The second thing that stands out to me is that the people didn't wait for others to do the work for them. They took initiative and completed their share of the work. So uh, there's some things in my life that, I, that this kind of strikes me, and Carlene and I have had these discussions because there, there have been times where she'll say, you know, I wish you would take initiative to do this. And over 12 years, we've sort of fallen into our habits of, I'll do this thing, I, you know, I take care of the bills, and she cooks dinner 99% of the time. And, and I got to admit that when, when, she's, when she's home, I don't even think about dinner. I, maybe that sounds bad, I don't know. But I just, you know, I just think, oh, it's going to be taken care of. But when she's not home, and now that she's in school more, and um, I, I, I realize that if I don't take ownership of the dinner... Nobody's eaten tonight, right? <laughs> and I'll hear about it pretty soon. Nobody didn't feed us tonight, right? <laughs> so, so we all fall in. I, I, think, I think it's part of human nature is that we, we, we see a need and we say, ah, oh, someone else will take care of it. It's, it's difficult for us to take ownership of the issue. In James chapter 2, James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I, I'm an idea guy. I really love ideas, and I really love to kind of think about different ideas, and, and maybe even to a fault. And I, I've started to think that maybe my ideas come from me, but really I think a lot of times those ideas may be ideas that the Lord is putting in my heart. And to really think about these ideas that I have, and I think sometimes I think all of us have those ideas, those things that we are not even ideas but perceptions, where we look around and we say, I see a need here. I, I, there's something that needs to be done here. And I would challenge you to say that perhaps that is God putting that need in you so that you might have the opportunity. He's giving you the opportunity to do the work. In some cases, it, it, it involves being a Nehemiah, being a leader. In some cases, uh, we will join the ranks of filling in the gaps to put the walls together. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that to each of us, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So perhaps God is putting ideas into your heart so that you might take that opportunity. Because God is also sharing the work with you, just as Nehemiah shared the work with others. The third thing that stands out to me is that these people treated their work as meaningful both unto God and each other, and God supernaturally worked through them. I think so many times it's easy, you know, it is so easy to go through the, the routine and to just say, okay, well, I'm just going to get this done. I'm just going to get this done. I mean, being a father, being a mom, being, uh, being, working somewhere, being a student, it's so easy to kind of like look at the end and not really take the joy in the work or not, or lose the meaning of what it means to work. 
But these guys saw this work as meaningful. God wants to do it, us to do it. We need to do it for each other. And God, I believe, from the very beginning, from Nehemiah's first plans, uh, as he built that wall, as he began to plan that wall, throughout, God was supernaturally at work through him and through each other. So they treated their work as meaningful unto God and each other, and God supernaturally worked through him. In 2 Chronicles chapter 31, we read about a, a king named Hezekiah. He was a king of Israel. And it says, This is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly. And so he prospered. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we have to believe, we are called to believe that God works supernaturally through us. I, one of the things that we, we have here is, that's maybe a little different for you is that we have what we call family members and we have what we call our stewards. So you may have gone to churches that have membership. Well, I don't really like that word because all of us are members of this body. All of us are part of this family. And, and then we say, for those that want to take an extra commitment, you are stewards of the church. I really like that word, stewards, because it, it, it means taking ownership of it. I mean, obviously, God is the owner. This is Jesus' church. He is the head, but he is entrusting the ministry to us. He is inviting us to take, in a sense, ownership of it. So I want to encourage you that as you go about your lives, as you look around and you see things and and you see a need or you see uh, a desire is planted in your heart and you say, oh, there's something could be done. Don't wait for someone else to do it because it's possible God is giving you that vision that he's not giving anybody else. Perhaps you'll voice the need and others will say, "I, I see that too. And they'll want to join in the work with you. But whatever it is, if God is laying that on your heart, take ownership of it. Be a steward of that vision. Be like Nehemiah who said, this is important work that God has called me to. And when you think that, oh, wait, wait a second. I, I'm not qualified for this. I've never done this before. I don't know what to do here. Remember, It is the Father who has qualified you and the Holy Spirit who has gifted you and you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Let's pray. So this morning, you may already have some ideas that the Lord has put on your heart. And I'd like you to hold on to those for just a moment. Maybe your heart's burning, maybe your head is spinning a little bit, like, you know what, God, you've been speaking to me and and obviously this is a message from you because I, I can't ignore this. And if that's the case, I would just invite you just to worship the Lord. Again, to pray through it, not to feel like you have to plan or make things happen on your own. You are dealing with the God who created the universe here. He can do all things. So I'd just invite you to worship the Lord. To say things like, God, you are good and you are gracious. You are awesome and majestic. You're the creator. You spoke creation into being.
You have ordained man. You have gifted me. You have loved me. Your banner over me is love. When we see the goodness and the glory of God and we see his love for us, we realize if God has qualified us, who are we to say that he is not? If God has equipped us, who are we to say that we are nothing? God has given us the Spirit, and God has given us His power and His love and a sound mind. So this morning, Lord, I give all of our plans to you. The things that we've thought of and the things we still haven't thought of, the things we've seen, the things that we seem to miss, or the things that will come to light soon enough. And Lord, we ask that you would be the center of it all, that we would not go about anything without consulting you first, without putting our, our foundation in you. We want you to be our hands and our feet, the firm rock on which we build. But Lord, we pray, God, that you would give us the confidence knowing that we are your children, knowing that you have equipped us It's you that speaks to us. And if you speak to us and you equip us, then who who are we to say that we can't? So God, I pray for each person. I pray that they would be men and women of vision. That they would be men and women who seek you and that you speak directly to them. And Lord, we ask that you make us men and women of action. Whether there are young people here or older people, it doesn't matter. For you are God who speaks to all who are willing to listen. We love you, God. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.